Then Job replied, How long will you torment me and crush me with words? Speaking to his friends, by the way. Ten times now you have reproached me. Shamelessly you attack me. If it is true that I have gone astray, my error remains my concern alone. If indeed you would exalt yourselves above me and use my humiliation against me, then know that God has wronged me, that he has drawn his net around me. Though I cry violence, I get no response. Though I call for help, there is no justice. He has blocked my way so I cannot pass. He has shrouded my paths in darkness. He has stripped me of my honor and removed the crown from my head. He tears me down on every side until I am gone. He uproots my hope like a tree. His anger burns against me. He counts me among his enemies. His troops advance in force. They build a siege ramp against me and encamp around my tent. He has alienated my family from me. My acquaintances are completely estranged from me. My relatives have gone away. My closest friends have forgotten me. My guests and my female servants count me a foreigner. They look on me as a stranger. I summon my servant, but he doesn't answer, though I beg him with my own mouth. My breath is offensive to my wife. I am loathsome to my own family. Even the little boys scorn me when I appear. They ridicule me. All my intimate friends detest me. Those I love have turned against me. I am nothing but skin and bones, and I have escaped only by the skin of my teeth. Have pity on me, friends. Have pity, for the hand of God has struck me. Why do you pursue me as God does? Will you never get enough of my flesh? Oh, that my words were recorded, that they were written on a scroll, that they were inscribed with an iron tool on lead or engraved in rock forever. I know that my Redeemer lives, that in the end he will stand on the earth. After my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes, I and not another. How my heart yearns within me. If you say how we will hound him since the root of the trouble lies in him, you should fear the sword yourselves, for wrath will bring punishment by the sword, and then you will know that there is judgment. This is the word of the Lord for us this evening. Do you see why I wanted to read Isaiah 43 a little bit earlier? Job gets heavy. Watching the evening news, my husband and I have noticed a pattern. When a reporter 
is interviewing a friend or a neighbor of someone recently deceased. And if you made it on the news, that usually means not great news. But regardless, whenever a person is interviewed about someone who's been deceased, almost without fail, we've started counting this, we're up to eight. The recently deceased person will be described as they could light up a room with their smile. Or they could just light up a room by walking into it. Some variation, we, we, we score this, but we kind of, it can be with a smile or just by walking in the room. Without fail, almost, the past eight times, the person, the neighbor, the random person on the street who potentially knew this person, tell us about, tell us about the recently deceased. Well, they could light up a room with their smile. I did not know the Kitchener-Waterloo was filled with such amazing smiles. <laughs> of all the ways to describe a person, all the ways to, to talk about their particularity, to talk about what made them them, this is not it. This is the most generic way possible to talk about someone. But it's also understandable, right? We tend to kind of fall back on standard scripts or things we've heard or pat answers when we encounter something that overwhelms us, especially when it comes to suffering and death. These kind of cliches and platitudes pile on top of one another at funerals and visitations, at nursing homes and hospitals. And Christians are actually particularly bad at this. We may not go about talking about smiles that can light up a room, but we have our own kind of group of go-to statements, of cliches, of pat answers. God has a plan. There's a reason this happened. Don't worry, God won't give you more than you can bear, so you must be able to bear this. Buck up. When we move from silence about suffering and death and we move into speaking about suffering and death, we, we too often rely on these cliches and platitudes and pat answers. They're easy, they're ready, and they make us feel better. Job 19, believe it or not, in the conversation that Job is having with his friends, we're walking into that same phenomena. We're stepping into this moment where Job's friends have gone from their silence sitting with him, and they've gone into a conversation with one another. Now, we've skipped over a whole lot of that conversation. When we left Job with Pastor Carl, he had just got to chapter 3 where Job speaks for the first time. And what does he say? What's, what's Job's speech about? Job curses the day he was born. Job gives us a speech of darkness and pain and suffering, and it is heavy, which is why Pastor Carl read Psalm 88, right? Darkness is my closest friend. To feel, to be with Job. But here, in the past few chapters, we get what comes after the silence. We get what comes after Job's words. We get a conversation with friends. 
friends seeking understanding, wanting to explain, to make some sense of what their friend Job is going through. And by the time we join the conversation here in chapter 19, Job and his friends have been talking for a long time already. We're, we're coming in about two-thirds through their conversation. And, and you can tell from the way that Job um, begins his speech in chapter 19 that we just read that the conversation's not going really well. I don't know the last time I described a conversation with my friends as, how long will you torment me and crush me with your words? How did this group of friends go from seven days and nights of silence, of solidarity, of supporting each other, of being with each other, to a war of words? That Job actually accuses them of tormenting him, of crushing him. So what happened? What's happened so far before we get to chapter 19? Right after we left off with Job in chapter 3, his friend Eliphaz speaks up. If someone ventures a word with you, dear friend, will you be impatient? But who can keep from speaking? Eliphaz goes on to remind Job of how he comforted and counseled people himself when they were in grief or suffering or in pain. He says, remember what you told them, Job? Do you remember the comfort you gave them, the words of encouragement you spoke? As says, but now that troubles come to you, dear friend, you are discouraged. It strikes you and you are dismayed. Should not your piety be your confidence and your blameless ways your hope? Or in other words, Eliphaz is saying to Job, remember what you believe, Job. Remember your hope. Be strong in the face of your troubles. Trust in God and he will hear you. Eliphaz sees a friend in pain and tries to speak a word of comfort. Not unlike our well-meaning friends who remind us when we're going through a particularly difficult situation, that God has a plan. That God won't give you more than you can bear. It's not that these things are untrue. It's not like what Eliphaz says to Job is untrue. It's not that it's untrue that God has a plan. But it's about timing. A friend's well-meaning word of encouragement spoken too soon can sting rather than comfort. And to Job, to the man who just a while back gave that speech of darkness, the words of Eliphaz sting. They don't comfort, they hurt. And Job pushes back on him, on his attempt to comfort saying, now you too prove to be of no help. It's very dismissing for someone just very well-intentioned. You see something dreadful, i.e. my suffering, and you're afraid, meaning you have to explain it away to make yourself feel better, to make it easier to understand. 
So Eliphaz and Job have this exchange right after chapter 3. Eliphaz doesn't speak up again, but Bildad does. And Job pushes back on him too. And the same with Zophar. And then Eliphaz comes back at Job, and then Job pushes back on him, and then Bildad comes, and then Zophar does. And, and this, there's these two cycles <laughs> of one friend saying, Ah, oh, Job, I'm not, you, you need to calm it down, buddy. Like, God is still good. And Job's saying, No, he's not. And so it's this back and forth of God is good, God is right, and Job's saying, No, he's not. I'm right, and he is wrong. And so it's this back and forth between these friends. And as they go back and forth, pushing, Job insisting of his innocence that God has wronged him, his friends insisting that, no, he's the one who's wrong, and God is justified and right, and he needs to calm down, they go back and forth in this vicious cycle, back and forth, until um, <clears throat> this conversation of friends that began in silence has de devolved into this like name-calling and kind of vicious attacks on each other, all in the name of defending God and his character, by the way. They're annoyed and frustrated with each other. And, and if you read closely these, these few chapters, like you, you hear the snippy sarcasm, especially from Job. Job, Job is not particularly nice with his tongue. He calls them hacks. He says, you are such good physicians. He just like, oh, read it. If you haven't read it, please read it. And, and, and read it with a, an ear of, of sarcasm. And, and Job comes across as a, um, not a particularly nice friend. So a conversation of friends come to comfort, to be with Job. This conversation of friends has devolved into an argument about the character of God, where each has a point to prove. Each thinks that the other is wrong and that they are right. And, and this conversation is, is not, you know, like most of us have with our friends some heated argument about something dumb, like if the Patriots should have won the Super Bowl or something. They are talking about who God is and who they are to God. And Job, Job takes a stance that God is wrong. If God can do what he did to me, don't know him. And his friends take him into a deep theological argument about why Job, in his anguish and suffering, is wrong. Throughout their conversation together, and we're reading just a small part of what Job says to them. Job has defended himself again and again to his friends. Over and over again, he has done nothing wrong. Even if he did do something wrong, there is nothing in his past that justifies how God is treating him now. <laughs> he goes, I have racked my brain and I have no idea. No sin of my youth could justify what I currently experience. So he demands an answer from God over and over again in speech after speech after speech. And he builds his case against God piece by piece through these speeches. 
alongside his constant refrain that death would be better than his current life, which is also something that he goes back to, a major theme. In our passage here, we see a major case against God. It's a long litany of accusations. And, and you can hear it better, so our, our translation uses he. He has blocked my way so I cannot pass. He has shrouded. But replace that with God. And the litany of accusations hurts. Though I cry violence, I get no response. Though I call for help, there's no justice. For God has blocked my way so I cannot pass. God has shrouded my paths in darkness. God has stripped me of my honor and removed the crown from my head. God tears me down on every side till I am gone. God uproots my hope like a tree. God's anger burns against me. God counts me among his enemies, and God sends his whole army to lay siege to my tent. And Job's not done. But reading this, I can almost hear Job's voice change. Because there you can, you can hear his self-righteous anger, right? God has done these things. God is my enemy. God is my roadblock. How dare you? But then he turns to his family and friends. Or what's left of his family and friends. And he describes how even in this intimate area of life, God has been merciless. God has separated my family from me. My relatives have gone away. My closest friends have forgotten me. Which that line does make me wonder how Eli, Bill, and Zophar think about his description. They're not closest friends by this point in the conversation. Job continues. My guests, my maidservants, treat me like a stranger. I call and even beg for my servant to come but he refuses. My very breath is offensive to my wife. I am loathsome to my own family. Even, even the young boys in the village taught to respect their elders point and made jokes at my expense. Those I love have turned against me. God has done this. And I am nothing now but skin and bones. Do you remember when I talked about heaviness? This is it. But I want to pause here a second because Job's language, brutal though it is in this part of chapter 19, it's not unique to him. It's not as if this stands alone in all of scripture as one brutal voice of honesty. He follows a traditional form of lament, which you can find throughout scripture. If you've read the book of Lamentations, which, spoiler alert, is about Lamentations, Job's language is very familiar. In Lamentations 3, the author sounds very Job-like. Very Job-like. This is what Lamentations 3, a piece of it. I am the man who has seen affliction by the rod of the Lord's wrath. He has made my skin and my flesh grow old and has broken my bones. 
He has besieged me and surrounded me with bitterness and hardship. Even when I call out or cry for help, he shuts out my prayer. Which, which could be lifted from anything Job has said. I could have attributed that to Job and you would not have questioned it, right? But Lamentations doesn't leave it there. Lamentations moves, as any traditional form of lament moves, into a word of hope, into remembering who God is. Lamentations starts there but continues on saying in this very famous passage, because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. And then this it turns into prayer to God. Great is your faithfulness. That is the traditional form for lament. It's where you lay out the affliction in really brutal detail, describing how either God or your enemies have, are, are crushing you or punishing you. But then you come out of it. You make an appeal to God to hear you, to have mercy, and God does, and you raise up saying, great is your faithfulness. This is the way lament moves. What does Job do? Job doesn't do any of that. He refuses to. He, he, he looks for pity, but if you notice it, he turns to his friends, asking them for pity. And then he asks them for pity, and it's got to be sarcastic because he immediately accuses them of siding with God against him, saying, for the hand of God has struck me, but instead you pursue me just like God does. You crush me with your words, even while he crushes me with his hand. There is no appeal for God's mercy in Job. Job begins to doubt that God has any mercy at all. Are you looking ahead in the chapter? Are you looking for a bright spot? Are you looking to that line, I know my Redeemer lives? Are you hoping we get there soon? a little bit of brightness. We start talking about Handel's Messiah. We hear that, that triumphant choral declaration that I know my Redeemer lives. we got to be getting there soon, right? I'm so sorry. <laughs> We're not. Have you read a series of unfortunate events? Lemony Snicket's series of unfortunate events? No? Hmm. <laughs> Children's book, Lemony Snicket is the narrator. And Lemony Snicket begins every, every story of the orphans, the Baudelaire orphans, by saying, um, please don't read any further. This is sad. Go away. If you want something happy, please look elsewhere. So I must apologize and say that I'm going to be Lemony Snicket in this moment and say that Job's story is a series of unfortunate events. And we're not to any kind of happy conclusion yet. Because we hear, I know my Redeemer lives in a particular way that I think is a little unfaithful to where Job is at right now. We might be doing what cliches and platitudes do to make us feel better about it. We're in a really dark place. Here we go, hallelujah, here's a verse about our Redeemer and resurrection. 
Okay, thanks be to God, this is better. Hang with me a second. Throughout Job's conversations with his friends, he has started to develop this idea of taking God to court. As, as his kind of death wish fades away, he starts picking up this image that he can bring his case to God in court and get justice. That he can have a trial and he can be vindicated. And, and if you read the conversation closely in the previous chapters, you'll see this, where he talks less and less about seeking death or welcoming death and more and more about getting hung up on this idea that if God will not be just to him, he will take God to court and he will show that he is right and that God is in the wrong. One of the clear examples of this is earlier in chapter 9, uh, around verse 32. And Job says that God is not a mere mortal, that I might answer him, that we might confront each other in court. If only there was someone to mediate between us, someone to bring us together, someone to remove God's rod from me, then I would speak up without fear of him. But as it now stands with me, I cannot. And then in chapter 16, around verse 18, he, he picks this imagery up again. Earth do not cover my blood. My cry never be laid to rest. Even now my witness is in heaven. My advocate is on high. On behalf of a man, he pleads with God. We are so quick to read Jesus into this passage. I want to hold off on that just a little so we can hear Job. Job raises in this passage again that hope for a trial. He is he's called for a witness. He has called for a mediator. And here he calls for a redeemer, which I don't know if in your 1984s if it capitalizes redeemer. Is it a capital R on redeemer? Yes? That's reading Jesus into it a little too fast. What Job is asking for is a kinsman redeemer. A kinsman redeemer is someone, a close family relative, who is tasked with defending the family honor, defending the family property. I need my kinsman redeemer. I know that my redeemer, my defender, my family defense lawyer lives. And that in the end, he will stand on earth after my skin has been destroyed. And stop there for a second. Because now we typically read it as, well, skin is destroyed, you want to see God, that's the resurrection. And it's this happy moment of wanting to see God with your eyes. How my heart yearns for this. Does that sound like the Job that we have heard so far? Does that sound like the Job we hear earlier in chapter 19. Wow. Sounds out of character, right? A modern translator clarifies, saying that Job puts his hope in this, this future kinsman redeemer who's going to come, clear his name, even after he's died, his, his, his skin is off, his skin has been destroyed. And what follows in chapter, in verses 26 and 27, is Job not having a resurrection hope, 
but saying how much more he would like to see himself vindicated before God with his own eyes. To confront God with his case. Not an advocate or a witness or a family defense lawyer, himself. I want to see myself vindicated before God with my own eyes. How I yearn for that day. Does that sound more like Job? That we've encountered? He even, right before, you notice that when he's talking about Oh, that my words were recorded, that they were written on a scroll, that they were inscribed with an iron tool on lead or engraved in rock forever. He wants his case to stand forever. He's saying, I might die, but I want my words, my case against God to endure beyond me. He really means this. Job ends his speech, chapter 19 ends, with a warning to his friends. That if you're so eager to make me guilty before God, well, you'd better watch out. Because what keeps this hound of heaven, this righteous God, from coming after you? And that's it. That's chapter 19. That's not exactly Handel's Messiah, is it? It's not a bright and happy spot to be. And we know, because we know the story, that Job gets exactly what he asks for what his heart yearns for. He gets his day in court. He gets to stand before God, to see God with his own eyes, or at least to experience the whirlwind in which God comes to him. But that longed-for day in court does not go exactly how he had hoped. But that's getting ahead of the story. We're not there yet. Job is not there yet. We can't get ourselves out of Job 19 by trying to escape to the end. We're still here in this heated argument between friends. This, this conversation about the character of God. Where do you fit in the conversation? Where do you fit in the conversation? Do you find yourself identifying with his friends? I mean, his friends are eager to defend God, to, to try and speak a word of comfort and encouragement and correction to a very stubborn Job who is accusing God of some pretty horrific things. They're just trying to talk some sense into a grieving friend and protect him from saying some really, really horrible things that he will regret. Or maybe you're Job. Maybe you're struggling with God. <clears throat> Wrestling with him to find an answer. If there is an answer for what you are experiencing in your own life. The way that Job is written this part of Job especially, this, this conversation of friends, this heated argument back and forth, it invites, it even demands that we join the conversation. We can't just eavesdrop. <laughs> 
it asks us to be a part of it, to see ourselves in it, to, to make our own arguments and viewpoint. And, and there's no easy person to side with in this conversation. There's no clear winner. There's no clear right person, either Job or his friends. There's no winner. Because remember that while his friends draw on the correct theology of the Psalms and the Proverbs of the fate of the wicked and the fate of the righteous, their theology is intact. They've got this. But they're still the ones to be rebuked at the end of the story. And Job rails against God. Rails against God. But he gets rebuked too. But he's also the one blessed at the end. In the very first sermon on the series, Pastor John framed the book of Job as an experience in intentional frustration. And it is. It beautifully, beautifully is. Because in the face of suffering and death, when we want cliches and easy answers, Job defies all of that. Reading through Job defies our easy answers, our cliches, our platitudes. The things that we say, not necessarily to make the grieving person feel better, but to make ourselves feel better, just like Job's friends. And maybe reading through Job every once in a while will help us clear our faith language from the easy assurances and empty platitudes that we use to make ourselves feel better in the face of suffering, of death, of pain, in the face of the things that overwhelm us. Maybe reading through Job every once in a while will remind us to be gentle in our speech with one another. Whether it's when we're suffering like Job and we lash out or it's when our friends suffer. And we want to be quick with a word of encouragement that comes as a sting instead of a comfort. Job and his friends wrestled with each other about the character of God. And there are many speeches from chapter four to this chapter here this evening they wrestle, and they argue, and they make points. Job, in his anguish and grief, portrays God as the enemy, the hound, the twisted king who delights in torturing his subjects. Whereas Job's friends portray God as the orchestrator of all things. Even the bad that comes our way must be deserved in some way. Because God is thoroughly... God is God, and who is Job, or who is anyone else to question who God is? And they go at it, speech after speech, point after point, insult after insult. Job gets to have God appear to him in a whirlwind, to put him in his place, but still to speak to him. We don't have God appear to us in a whirlwind. 
when we're questioning, when we're wrestling, we don't get a whirlwind. We have something better. Something that Job, something that his friends, for all of their defense of God's character, did not have. The whirlwind, the arguments, they don't reveal the character of God. The cross does. We know the true character of our God. Because God has shown us who he is. God has shown us what kind of God he is. The kind of God who enters our world and our suffering and even our death to bring us the promise of life and of salvation. Even though Job may have said these famous words through clenched teeth and a raised fist to the sky, it doesn't mean his words aren't true. His words speak a truth deeper and truer than he could ever have imagined. I know that my Redeemer lives. that in the end he will stand on the earth. And I myself will see him with my own eyes. I and not another. How my heart yearns within me. Whether you are Job, whether you are his friends, that is a good word to hear. Thanks be to God. Amen. Let's pray. We know who you are. We know that you are the only God that you are the Holy One, our Savior, our Redeemer. We know who you are. There are seasons of life where that is more than enough. There are seasons of life where it is not enough but you remain faithful. So whether we come before you as Job or as his friends, you hear us. You remain God to us. You remain our Redeemer. Thank you. Thank you for the story of Job. Thank you for the assurance of who you are. And thank you for the way that your cross reveals who you are. That we know who you are in Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Savior, our Redeemer. 
It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.